This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Princeton University Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is New Lefts, The Making of a Radical Tradition by Terence Renault. It's a groundbreaking history of Europe's new lefts, from the anti-fascist 1920s to the anti-establishment 1960s, providing vital historical perspective on the challenges confronting the left today. This book tells the story of generations of anti-fascists, left socialists, and anti-authoritarians who tried to build radical democratic alternatives to capitalism and kindle hope in reactionary times. New Lefts, The Making of a Radical Tradition, by Terence Renault, out now from Princeton University Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. It's the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and so also, of course, the anniversary of the War on Terror that Bush declared soon thereafter. Our war on terror begins with al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. This is a three-part series on the War on Terror with journalist Spencer Ackerman, the author of Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. The Forever Wars unleashed murderous violence and wrecked countries across the world, very much including the United States. This is Episode 1, 9-11, Bipartisan War Fever, and George W. Bush. Look out for Episodes 2 and 3, which will cover the war on terror under Obama, Trump, and Biden next week. Before we get rolling, if you appreciate what we do here at The Dig, if you depend upon us for sharp analysis of everything everywhere, please take a quick moment to support us at patreon.com slash the dig. If you're listening right now and you've always been meaning to support us and just never get around to it, hey, I get it, but now is a great time to make that contribution. Just take a few minutes, hit pause, navigate to patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. Even five bucks a month is enormous. $10 a month or more will send you a book or books, a mug, tote bag. But since we don't paywall any episodes, the main way we raise money to keep the pod going is just to ask you to contribute and support the independent media that you depend on. We will also be starting a weekly newsletter posted on our website and emailed directly to patrons in the next two weeks. So please sign up now to get our first newsletter coming soon. That's patreon.com slash the dig. Okay, here's Spencer Ackerman, the author of Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. A Pulitzer Prize-winning and National Magazine Award-winning reporter, Spencer currently writes the Forever Wars newsletter on Substack, which I will link to in the show notes. 
Spencer Ackerman. Welcome to The Dig. Dan, I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. As have I. The news has, of course, for weeks been consumed by the U.S. withdrawal defeat in Afghanistan. But revealingly, one rarely encounters any sort of reflection upon, one, whether the war should have been waged in the first place, or two, any thought as to what the war on terror has done to the United States itself. And it has, in fact, done quite a lot of harm, including the presidency of Donald Trump, who would never, I pretty firmly believe, never have been president had the forever wars not been waged in the first place. You write, quote, their central blind spot emerged from the American exceptionalism at the heart of the war on terror, the belief that the damage they inflicted abroad would not damage their own country. Trump and MAGA, for now, are out of power. The war on terror is not. Why does this profound domestic damage caused by the war on terror so often go unrecognized? Do you think that it's that that's related to why it's still so impossible, even as the U.S. finally withdraws from Afghanistan, so impossible to question the fundamental wisdom of the war on terror at the most basic level? Primarily, it's because the war on terror is nothing new in American history. The war on terror is an inflection point that reflects so much of the most violent, the most racist, and the most nativist currents in American history, given opportunity to return to power under veneer of a patriotic emergency. The reason why the war on terror now appears so inconspicuous is not a function of the rescission of the war on terror, even in you know, light of the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. But because, as uh, Kerry Howley wrote really insightfully in her New York Magazine piece recently about the whistleblower Daniel Hale, it's because so much of it has simply become the normal way of conducting American foreign policy, that for all of this time, the war on terror, um, really even since the, the inception of the war on terror, the war on terror accelerates extant aspects of American global hegemony and brings them into something more of an extremist case in terms of how readily the United States resorts to violence, uh, resorts to exploitation in, in both ways horrifically massive in scope and also minute, uh, almost to the point of escaping notice because they're so routine. Um, in their brutality and often so intimate in their brutality as well as so distant in their brutality. So the war on terror, it allows American nativism the opportunity to be its most authentic self when it comes to um, an enterprise of global policing that often, as, as you write really exceptionally well in all American nativism, that nativist foreign policy uh, tends to be, you know, quite in tension with the manifestations of American empire um, that you see, you know, Pat Buchanan uh, probably most conspicuously, you know, con constantly um, talking about coming home, you know, come home America. And this is very often um, described as isolationism. But the war on terror revealed that that's not exactly true, that there is tremendous nativist appetite 
for a violent expedition understood in civilizational terms, understood to be about exacting vengeance for a wound America suffers that looks and then functions more like a humiliation America has to avenge. And in that atmosphere, nativism is very happy to go abroad in search of a civilizational monster to destroy, because what it also gets out of it in a war like this is an opportunity to inflict both similar and also more subtle violence against uh, those members of that marauding foreign civilization who now have committed the calamity of being their neighbors. Obviously, I mean this, you know, metaphorically so, but basically they're, you know, not, not everyone is living next to these kinds of mixed communities. But when America, particularly after the 1960s, starts um, accepting greater numbers of non-white refugees, um, particularly refugees from places that American imperialism uh, has destabilized, refugees that, you know, to be, you know, really direct about this, that America creates, the nativist response isn't most often to, you know, demand the end uh, to those refugee-creating enterprises. It's to inflict violence and persecution against those refugees. This happens even as, and we're seeing this again today with media depictions of Afghanistan, while, you know, an overclass uh, is describing the creation of these refugees as an indictment of American moral courage to continue waging the doomed war that created the refugees. And so when the refugees, this happens with the Vietnamese boat people, so-called boat people, um, when they come to places like Galveston, Texas, um, and they start, you know, working as shrimp fishermen, the Ku Klux Klan gets a whole, the Ku Klux Klan basically operates a, a, a riverine operation conducted by people who have experience conducting riverine operations from, from the Mekong River in Vietnam. All of these refugees from regimes that the United States created and then could not prop up um, after defeat in the war are treated as no different than the Viet Cong or the North Vietnamese army. And because you can't get vengeance on the Viet Cong or the North Vietnamese army, you sure can get vengeance on shrimp fishermen. And that is a pattern in American history that comes very, very, very to the fore um, during the war on terror. For those listeners who were small children or not even born yet, it's hard to describe the generalized psychosis that coursed through American politics and society after 9-11. Bush's approval ratings went into the 90s. It was surreal. In, in a way, today's media consensus opposing Biden's withdrawal reminds me of that moment or, or even seems like an echo of what it was like 20 years ago. What was the immediate political and social aftermath of 9-11 in the U.S. And how did it shape who Americans are and how they think about their country and the world? Um, so first off, those approval ratings represent a manipulated, exploited, very genuine, traumatic response. I'm a native New Yorker. My experience of 9-11, I went to college at Rutgers University 
So I was across, I was away from the city when I was watching on TV, the towers fall. And all I could think that day was that uh, my parents are going to die. My cousin is going to die. My friends are going to die. Everyone I care about is going to die. And I'm here and there's nothing I can do about it. And so many of my neighbors are forever shaped by that circumstance and by everything that came from it, literally for days afterward, smelling the air that was polluted by burning corpses. And it could have made America receptive and empathetic to what it is like to be the victim of an airstrike. This is the only airstrike America has experienced, certainly since Pearl Harbor. But this, you know, for the World Trade Center's perspective, you know, not in, not a military target. That horror, that indelible sense of vulnerability, and that search for meaning to contextualize what this mass atrocity that you both experience um, directly as a member of a community and then also vicariously as a media event, what that means. And this is where the war on terror is truly born, not from the attack itself, but from the deliberate decision of political elites, military elites, journalistic elites, and intellectual elites to say that there is only one response to this. And it is not a response of understanding that the experience of an airstrike is so horrific that the way American foreign policy operates must change if we are to actually, in any durable way, be safe from such a future attack. That is absolutely the first thing rejected. The first thing rejected in the war on terror is contextualizing 9-11 in any sense of historical and material circumstance. The culture of 9-11 ensures that. It is what we would understand today as a cancel culture. It is an exceptionally censorious culture. You know, an example I use in the book is Susan Sontag. So like one of the giants of 20th century American literature and while sometimes uneasily 20th century American leftism, late 20th century American leftism. And Sontag writes about a week plus after the attacks that she's disgusted with the mainstream response to them because it is so deliberately ignorant of what American foreign policy in the Arab world, in the broader Muslim world, truly is, which is to say violent, extractive, exploitative, domineering, and repressive. You know, the United States, it will surprise no listener of the dig. Um, it will scandalize no listener of the dig, underwrites and through which operates the instruments of repression in the Middle East from specific internal um, security apparatuses of various American allies to apartheid Israel, um, which is both an aid recipient and a customer of the U.S. defense industry, always has an important exception to 
uh, the Islamophobia that results from from all of this, and that exception is Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia being not only the actual state in the Middle East that comes the closest to being an alliance uh, with justifications for uh, exporting uh, very repressive and violent ideologies that use Islam as a pretext, but you know you can't operate global capitalism without what's underneath Saudi Arabia, or at least you used to not be able uh, to do that. And so you see the ways from the start that not only is the war on terror censorious, but the ways in which it makes great effort to ensure that where this narrative of justification has to be deployed, it stays firmly on the side of exempting the people through which its economic system must operate. And for raising some of these, but not all of these um, critiques by saying that, you know, we can see 9-11 through the prism of what American foreign policy is in the Middle East, Sontag is canceled. Sontag is described as craven, is described as uh, a moral relativist, which is a term we'll hear throughout the war on terror, that she is an enemy of another related term, moral clarity, unable to diagnose evil in the world, and simply uh, a reflexive proponent of blaming America uh, for attacks that America suffers. Now, it's important to point out that Sontag did none of these things. It's important to point out that it is not to blame the people who died on 9-11 who are blameless for U.S. foreign policy in any rigorous way. It is to indict the systems that drove the circumstances that led to the deaths of my neighbors. And this is a distinction that does not get to cook in the post 9-11 atmosphere. And I would argue first that once these processes of intellectual uh, exploitation take root, then we funnel a response to trauma only down a certain violent and ahistorical direction through the mechanism of the war on terror. And that secondly, we are not equipped and our political leadership doesn't argue for an interpretation of 9-11 that says the urgent act of counterterrorism that really is required right now is to dismantle the American empire that brought us to this horrific circumstance, that such a thing is never considered the real act of safety and security that it is, not just for Americans, but for so many others overseas. But certainly it is only seen as a surrender to terrorism, not the most durable method of counterterrorism conceivable, an actual redress to material and historical circumstances. Yeah, I mean, that wasn't really up for debate. And ensuring that dismantling American empire wasn't even a subject of debate was the whole idea. Sontag was vilified. There was intense vilification of any dissent, which is so notable because there was so little high profile dissent at the time. And amid this insistence, as you just mentioned, of what became known as moral clarity, 
flags were everywhere. 9-11 was seen as good for American masculinity. It was proclaimed that it was the end of irony. I don't. (laughs) Yeah, like lots of times. It was an insane. I mean, so much of the culture immediately after 9-11, you know, just seems like a fever dream. I, you know, I would in going back through a lot of the contemporaneous journalism at the time, not just, you know, the stuff that that I was writing, but the stuff that was like more generally out there, you would just see like there were examples of like plastic surgery rates in Manhattan skyrocketing because like people who felt like they had kind of a touch of, you know, a touch with mortality in order to feel normal again, like opted when they had the money for cosmetic surgery. Like this was part of a response to the trauma of 9-11. Yeah. And yet many at the time and afterward perversely think of that moment, which at its most sympathetic was a moment of people suffering in trauma and at its least sympathetic of people just embracing wild-eyed jingoism. They reflect upon that moment as America at its best. Glenn Beck's 9-12 movement, one extreme but revealing example. Yeah. Now, look, there is no national unity after 9-11. There is a national mobilization. These things are much, much, much different. And, you know, particularly given that we're about to be greeted with an onslaught of gauzy and apologetic 9-11 memorialization with the 20th anniversary coming up, it's really important to draw those distinctions. I grew up and I still live in Flatbush in Brooklyn. And nearby is a sub-neighborhood called Little Pakistan. Little Pakistan, I'll be writing about this um, for uh, the coverage of the 20th anniversary of, of, the nine, of 9-11 uh, at my uh, Forever Wars newsletter on Substack. I recently had occasion to go back through documents that community leaders in Little Pakistan uh, kept about the experiences of the local children. And junior high school and high school students would report that their classmates who, you know, these are children, they're reflecting the attitudes that uh, the people they look to for moral and ethical direction in life um, are providing in the wake of 9-11, the example set, uh, the way that we as a society permitted, uh, particularly white people, uh, to interpret the trauma of 9-11, talking about reporting them to immigration, talking about calling the police on them because they were responsible for 9-11, talking about calling the police on them because they were responsible for the next 9-11, asking them where the bombs were, calling them Osama, saying that they needed to go back to their own country. And then what's really striking is there's a section on this form that the community leaders prepared that says, you know, did you tell anyone about this? And uniformly, from what I saw, they said that they were afraid to tell their teachers. They were afraid to tell anyone from outside of their community what was going on. These are children. This is the real wages of what the post 9-11 moment was when, you know, you are hearing on op-ed pages and endlessly on cable news that we're one country and united we stand. No, like the FBI went leaving cards under the doors of my neighbors, like granted access to their buildings, going and slipping under apartment doors 
their cards with their numbers on it saying, call us, we have to talk. People who did absolutely nothing. There is not a single member of the 9-11 plot that had anything to do with this, with, with Little Pakistan, with Astoria, with Jackson Heights, with like the most, some of the most vibrant, like important, like New York neighborhoods of New York in the name of avenging the trauma of other New Yorkers. They were persecuted. Their children's lives were permanently affected. These are now people in their 40s and, you know, their their 20s, 30s, 40s. They're people who suffered through the NYPD's construction of an extensive surveillance apparatus, um, you know, nearby where I am at Brooklyn College. Muslim student organizations found themselves under police surveillance for being Muslim student organizations. The NYPD followed a Muslim, infiltrated a Muslim student association and went whitewater rafting undercover with them. Yeah, like this is, (laughs) but, you know, the, the FBI as well by 2010 has created a network estimated at 10,000 of informants. And, you know, very often we get this picture of, you know, an FBI informant or a police informant as someone who saw something and said something. No, these are people who have been criminalized by uh, the transformation of the American legal system to allow it to be illegal to provide what, what is commonly known as material support to terrorism, which is to say an ever expansive justification for spying on people and arresting people and charging people that is very distant from any act of violence that operates as a collective punishment and operates as collective opportunity for law enforcement to suborn people and get them to become informants on their own neighborhoods. This doesn't prevent terrorism. But it absolutely introdu- it absolutely expands and normalizes an apparatus of repression that is racialized, that is overwhelmingly focused uh, on working class neighborhoods, that is ultimately seen as able to persist for so long because it has, at the absolute minimum, the acquiescence of both political parties. It has the acquiescence of the power structures of the cities in which it operates and the states in which it operates. And that's really what the post 9-11 moment is. You can see its authoritarian nature from the start. You can see who its victims are from the start. You can see the distinctions it is not interested in drawing from the start. You hinted at this a moment ago, but before we move on, what were the massive Muslim registry known as NSEERS, which was designed by Ashcroft aide and future nativist celebrity Chris Kobach and Pentbomb, this huge roundup of Muslim non-citizens, both of which instituted right after 9-11. And I'm guessing even my most informed listeners probably have not heard of either. NSEERS is the first Muslim registry in the United States. You'll recall that when Donald Trump proposes such a thing, Um, In 2015, there's an enormous outcry and it's seen as, you know, a disgusting thing because it is a disgusting thing. What was very rarely noted at the time was that this was a database that got up. If it wasn't 100,000 people, it was close to it. A registry of Muslim non-citizens in America. 
this was considered voluntary. But if you are in a position of not having citizenship and you hear that you have been invited to register your presence uh, by the immigration authorities, you're probably not going to consider that very voluntary at all. Um, This resulted in at least, apologies if I blow the actual statistic, but something in the neighborhood, at least 12,000 deportations result from this. But primarily what it is, is a registry of people's lives, the data that provides the government with tremendously invasive visibility onto uh, how they operate, where they live, where they move, what they do, what their patterns of life are. This registry exists until 2009, operated ultimately by the Department of Homeland Security. It includes biometric information. The Obama administration says that's enough. We're going to shut down NSEERS. They shut down NSEERS, but they don't delete the data. The database is still there. Anyone who wants to have a Muslim registry in the United States can, you know, flick a metaphorical switch and NSEERS is there and you can continue um, to expand it. So that is one of several institutional Chekhov's guns of the war on terror. Then there's PETBOM. The name is the FBI's acronym for the investigation into the Pentagon bombing. There is no substantial connection between uh, the people of Northern Virginia, and there are um, substantial uh, Muslim communities uh, in Northern Virginia, including very affluent ones, particularly around like Falls Church. And formerly uh, Republican voting. Very Republican voting. Like this, the, like uh, it's, it's also kind of wild to remember in retrospect, Bush reached out to conservative Muslims during the 2000 election and kind of suggested that he would be better equipped to be a critic of Israel uh, than Marty Peretz's friend Al Gore. Under the pretext of investigating local connections to the the Al-Qaeda attack on the Pentagon, the FBI conducts, over the course of many months, mass roundups in Northern Virginia and finds predictably, you know, no Al-Qaeda connection But also, as it goes through what it can find, it finds people who preach things that the FBI finds alarming, uh, people who are connected through, sometimes directly, other times through a couple steps removed, uh, people who would be traveling uh, to places like Pakistan to try and join in, allegedly, um, fights against the United States soldiers in Afghanistan, more often involvement Um, in more localized jihadist activity in Pakistan, but more often what it simply finds are regular people. And it maps the patterns of life of entire communities. This ultimately becomes something the FBI uh, does called Project Pinpoint, where it simply creates maps of Muslim communities without any suspicion of crime um, that persists ultimately um, for many, many, many years. Among the most important outcomes of uh, the Pentbaum investigation is that there is a Northern Virginia imam who has like pretty stridently conservative and violence justifying perspectives on a variety of battlefields involving Muslims overseas from you know Bosnia to Chechnya and so forth, but doesn't include 
America on uh, the list of like entities that require like a violent response um, in his view, uh, which is kind of an important distinction. Um, this is someone who was invited to the Pentagon to help educate the Pentagon and what it was very unfortunately describing as moderate Islam, uh, which should tell you everything about uh, the racism and the ignorance that characterized very powerful understandings of Islam in America. Ultimately, the FBI decided it would rather try and catch him in a blackmail operation because he might have been paying for sex and attempt to suborn him, presumably, um, and use him as a mechanism to spy on his community. Instead, that guy fled. He went to uh, some family in Yemen uh, where his extended family was rather influential in a place called Shabwa. And that guy uh, is named Anwar al-Awlaki. Uh, the war on terror creates Anwar al-Awlaki. If not for the pent bomb investigation, I don't mean this in any kind of weird conspiratorial way. I mean that we know as a matter of fact that before... Uh, There's a direct line from one thing to this, the other. This could not direct. be stri- like more straightforward. Before the FBI decides to put Anwar Alaki under pressure uh, to blackmail him, he does not preach or justify violence against the United States. After that happens, Alaki believes that he has made a great mistake in trying to tell his community that there is a difference between the war on terror and a war on Islam. He no longer sees that to be the case. He goes to Yemen and a variety of things happen in between. So to kind of yada yada this away, the U.S.'s ally in Yemen uh, continues its surveillance of him on America's behalf. He gets thrown in prison for something like 18 months. He comes out like really ready to do this. He becomes someone who aspirant violent jihadists go to for guidance. Ultimately, he becomes someone who materially aids a very misguided Nigerian kid named Umar Farouk Abdul-Multalib, who thought and then realized he was not about that life to try and blow up an airliner going to Detroit in December on Christmas Day 2009. For this and other um, preaching activities, ultimately the United States under the Obama administration, in a process that it saw internally as a lawful alternative to the lawlessness of the Bush era war on terror, said that an American citizen, Anwar Awlaki, simply because the CIA pinky swears that it is too dangerous to apprehend him, can be executed without indictment, charge, or trial. And before we move on from this, we should underline that you write that 762 people were held on immigration charges, including many at the Metropolitan Detention Center in, in Brooklyn in just incredibly abusive conditions. 762 that we know about, even 20 years later, lawyers, advocates, activists, survivors, and so forth are not confident that we know the scale of the post 9-11 immigration roundups, which use tools like something called the material witness statute, which is supposed to stop people who've observed a crime from fleeing. Well, now it's been misinterpreted Uh, or rather the opportunity such a law presents uh, is seized by the FBI and what was then INS 
to say that all of these people saw 9-11. So they're material witnesses <laughs> to that crime. And that's all the pretext we need. And they would go inside places like this federal jail in Sunset Park in Brooklyn. Sunset Park uh, is a place that uh, my dad lived for a while, is a place that my dad worked. So like a lot of the kind of physical locations of the war on terror, like I have a kind of like, not just emotional connection, but like a sense memory, if that makes sense. People went in there and they were treated like they were violent killers. Uh, They were held in four point restraints, uh, like we see in Guantanamo Bay. Think about that. Your, Your arms, your feet, sometimes your waist, sometimes even your neck would be strapped down onto onto gurneys. You were under constant surveillance and you were entirely at the mercy. Sometimes your families would go, you know, days without knowing where you were. Sometimes, you know, there were people, including a man named Mohammed Butt, who died inside there um, of a cardiac arrest, someone who had never been in any sort of trouble in his life. And you can read about that. I would recommend uh, an excellent book called We Are All Suspects Now uh, by Tram Nguyen. It really talks about the immigration roundups and uh, 9-11's impacts on on immigrant communities uh, far, far, far away uh, from the New York Tri-State area, but there as well. You write, quote, Because the United States believed itself to be exceptional, it was poorly equipped to understand that the sort of geopolitical, economic, and cultural impact it has on the world would at some point provoke a violent response. Such recognition was too close for elite comfort to contending the entirely separate proposition that America deserved such an attack. But exceptionalism equipped the nation very well to turn its trauma outward onto the world. How was it that this very same ideology that made it so impossible for Americans to even contemplate attempting to understand or contextualize 9-11, how did that drive not only the initial push into war, but also the continuation and continuously massive expansion of war over the past two decades, with the U.S. response being to repeatedly double down and dig in even as those expanded wars created even more monstrous enemies to fight. Did America's refusal to examine bin Laden's motivations, which he published, did that also make it impossible for Americans to, over time, recognize that what our government was doing was meeting bin Laden's goal of, as you write, quote, simply provoking America into being itself? I think... The way we have to go about addressing that question is by like first identifying what American exceptionalism is and how it fuels American foreign policy in this globally hegemonic direction, how it is an ideology of capital and operates as a justification um, for the expansion in ever more violent and extractive purposes of the interests of capital globally. American exceptionalism is not even really that distinct a concept. American exceptionalism is essentially the outward direction of the historical forces that throughout American history we we understand as settler colonialism and as manifest destiny. That ultimately America, by virtue of the opportunities that it presents 
for expanding what it calls freedom has the right and under some justification, some, some versions of the theory, uh, the obligation to expand those frontiers of freedom on behalf of all of these benighted civilizations that will ultimately benefit from acquiescence to the American way of life. And, you know, all of these um, descriptions in capsule or question begging, you know, not be surprised to know that, you know, what happens through that expansion across the West? Once the, the frontier is closed, the expansions um, into Latin America, into the Philippines, into the Caribbean, um, and then, you know, more globally, um, with the advent, not just of the Second World War, but importantly, the Cold War, ultimately orient the United States from uh, seeing itself as the lever for which history moves and accordingly is responsible for all of these accumulated historical circumstances that have life and death, wealth and poverty implications for so many millions of people in all areas of the world, and instead sees itself as presenting uh, what it calls the rules-based international order, a just ordering of the world that provides the greatest benefit to the greatest number, and never mind that you know the real great benefits it provides are to an exceptionally small group of people, and then a slightly larger group of people around them that serve their interests and so forth, who are a derivative of, 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 of their activity. And ultimately comes to understand that the proper order of the world is one in which America acts and not one that where America is acted upon. And 9-11 is seen as a horror, not only because in the United States of its human consequences, but because it represents a breakdown in that order, that now America was acted upon, that now America has experienced the airstrike rather than inflicting the airstrike. And that becomes a very volatile circumstance. Once in that circumstance, American exceptionalism does not accept that its prior actions, the actions that it previously authorized, justified, and said were the right outcomes expressed through the right processes of the so-called rules-based international order. But those actions shaped exactly the circumstances that led directly to 9-11. That is not for a moment to deny the agency of Al-Qaeda. It's to contextualize it. The reason why it sometimes is a point you have to struggle to make even 20 years later is because the legacy of the initial rejection of such modes of thinking after 9-11 becomes so dominant. And the absence of patience with competing schools of thought that would interpret 9-11 this way is just functionally considered bin Laden's point of view and never to be given respectability. Um, it, it is always understood as simply, well, what do you want to do? Give bin Laden what he wants and leave the Middle East? Well, motherfucker. Like, maybe allow the people of the Middle East to determine their own fucking fate, to determine their own fucking wealth. Maybe that would prevent people from deciding that they need to take revenge on the United States, for whom they, correctly or not, attribute um, this circumstance of subjugation. And this really isn't, this is, I guess, what's sometimes like very offensive about 
the culture of, of 9-11 is that like, this isn't an obscure pattern of history. It's a really familiar one. It's one that makes a whole lot of sense if you just look at how frequently throughout the history of every single empire, every single extractive condition, resistance results from that. Some of it will justify itself in religious terms. Some of it will justify itself on philosophical terms. Um, some of it will you know, become synergistic on all of this. Some of this will take a response um, that's fundamentally solidaristic. Some of it will take responses that's fundamentally nativist. Some of it, and on and on and on. But this is what happens when you dominate other peoples. And never in the 9-11 era, which continues to this day, is that considered a respectable analysis. And as a result, you get what you see you know, on TV after Biden withdraws troops from Afghanistan. Not a historical analysis, not a material analysis, not an effort to understand how it was that a defeated enemy after 9-11 can spend the next 20 years exploiting every American mistake as they compound and come back to power victorious. There wasn't much dissent, as we've been discussing in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, but neither as you said earlier, discussing Little Pakistan, was there as much of a consensus as it might have seemed to many at the time? And some of the dissensus fermenting just below the surface was was pretty weird and revealing. You write, quote, a durable conspiracy called 9-11 trutherism held that the towers were destroyed by a treasonous globalist government that sought to gin up an imperial war. What accounts for the remarkable popularity of 9-11 conspiracism. And it was rather, and maybe still is, rather popular. According to a 2006 Scripps-Howard Ohio University poll, quote, more than a third of the American public suspects that federal officials assisted in the 9-11 terrorist attacks or took no action to stop them so the United States could go to war in the Middle East. It's a pretty remarkable number. Well, was this what anti-war politics looked like in the face of a political class so unified behind war and in the absence of a coherent left to channel the underlying sentiment? Was And was it a precursor of sorts to, to QAnon, which, after all, has its own ideas about the security state? I mean, some of these figures, you know, are, are direct bridges. You know, Alex Jones starts life as a 9-11 truther. Prison Planet starts life as 9-11 trutherism. The most charitable explanation I can offer is that the trauma of 9-11 is so real and the discussion of 9-11 that emerges afterward is so deceitful, euphemistic, propagandistic, and clearly for the benefit of a very narrow slice of the population that wants to do something that ultimately, while it might have momentarily, you know, very high poll numbers, is not popular at all, uh, which is a sustained militaristic reassertion of American power overseas indefinitely. In such an environment, it can be very easy to simply, in a wholesale way, discredit everyone who is like seemingly picking up on strains of the mainstream explanations for 9-11, where like Bush didn't knock down the towers because 
come on, Bush didn't knock down the towers. You know, I like the songs too, but Bush didn't knock down the towers. In that environment, particularly as you mentioned in, in your question, another element of it is like, everyone is being misled, like during this period. All of the explanations on offer are wretched. The ones that come closer to the truth are very aggressively and deliberately marginalized. And at a moment like this, like this happens when like the American left is in like some of its weakest stage. You know, I'm not equipped to say like if this is the weakest the American left has ever been, but like I can just tell you as like a disappointed teenager and someone in their early 20s who was like very much a red diaper baby, the left felt just entirely irrelevant. I can personally report that it felt pretty lonely. There hadn't yet been a leftist like recoalescence. And one of the the things I kind of trace in the book is like in the absence of that, then like you have this horrific circumstance where like in the absence of a viable left, you know, the task falls to liberals and liberals are really not equipped, even were they inclined um, to offer resistance to this enterprise. Instead, they offer uh, acquiescence, technocracy, and the recrudescence of a less rude form of hegemony. And, you know, loud critique without that countervailing political force. Some people in their despair and in their earnest searches for understanding what happened and the meaning behind their trauma are going to sign up for a lot of really noxious shit. Let's turn to the wars, starting with the authorization for use of military force, which was passed all but unanimously by Congress on September 18th, 2001. What was in the AUMF of 2001? And what did it reveal about the state of politics at that moment that Representative Barbara Lee was the only one to vote no? Um, So all that's in the authorization for the use of military force is 60 words, six zero. Those words, which I can't quite, you know, recite from memory, say that in order to avenge the 9-11 attacks and anyone who had remotely anything to do with them, which, which includes states, which includes unnamed regimes, which includes unnamed entities, the United States is authorized to respond anywhere in the world with any tool of its choice at any time it sees fit, it is about as literal a definition of a blank check for war as you can imagine, because the most salient, there are two exceptionally salient features of this short document. The first is that it doesn't name an enemy. What it says is to avenge 9-11, you know, however defined, um, and anyone possibly involved in it, and also to prevent future acts of terrorism. So the enemy is not fixed, which means a politician can define the enemy as they see fit to shift over time and to suggest that we are not talking about a cadre of definable people led again, I must reemphasize, by a billionaire who, you know, after they are dealt with, the threat is gone. It instead is defined exceptionally broadly. And this leads to the second salient feature. The most specific language there is 
in the AUMF is about who gets to decide. And the answer is the president gets to decide. This transforms the presidency. This represents the culmination of a lot of uh, right-wing legal theorization of the presidency um, and its powers, particularly in wartime, uh, which is seen as a constitutional extremist case. And through this act, that theory known as the unitary executive, which means that no element of executive power is independent of the personal direction of the president of the United States. So essentially, the organs of national security, you know, give the kind of like superficial civics explanation. They are supposed to be responsive to the Constitution of the United States and take direction from the president of the United States. But they are not supposed to be responsive to the president of the United States. The system is set up in such a way where there is at least that sort of formal, if always in practice, contested independence. This transforms that. This says that in this area of response, it is the president who does the thing. And you are to carry out the orders of the presidency. A lot of people have described this as a, as a moment where, you know, following a very long trajectory throughout, um, in particular, the Cold War, this is a moment where the presidency starts to look something more like an elected king or a Roman consul, where near dictatorial powers are invested in the president and the other elements of government when it comes to this sphere of authority are more like consultative bodies than meaningful constraints. They can be discarded at will. That is the AUMF of 2001. That remains on the books today. It was amended very significantly under Barack Obama's presidency um, in what I want to say was, it's called the uh, NDAA of of 2012, but it was passed in 2011. 2012 is a fiscal year um, in this case, um, that redefined the enemy as expressed under the AUMF in a way that expanded its scope even further by adding the words and associated forces. This was Barack Obama, who had early in his presidency attempted to reorient the war on terror into something more like a war on Al-Qaeda, but then quickly found that it was exceptionally convenient to include not only Al-Qaeda in that appropriate designated targeting list, that there were these associated forces that the public has never had defined for it. This is, in, this is a state secret, who the members of those associated forces are and how they are defined. This remains to this day an aspect of opacity around a central aspect of the war on terror, which is to say, who does the government designate as its enemy who can be targeted under the war on terror? Um, so that's a really astonishing thing. Um, the point that I'm driving at is that this central authority, the 2001 uh, AUMF, is a recipe not only for a truly forever, forever war, but as well from the start has the effect by design of transforming the relationship between the presidency and the citizenry. So the things that America does come from America. This is not a war coming home. This is a war that's been home. And yet again, Barbara Lee was the only person to vote no. To Bernie's credit in the past presidential campaign, 
he said during a debate, and it was an incredible moment to watch, he said that he regretted voting for the AUMF and that Barbara Lee had been right. But at the time, she was absolutely alone. And if you remember, and it's important to remember, the, the de minimis argument that Barbara Lee offered for why you should vote no on the AUMF, which was, as she put it, can we just stop and breathe for a moment and think about the implications of what we're about to do? I write in the book that um, there were powerful Democratic senators, Carl Levin, who would go on to be the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, who kind of respond to Lee tacitly by saying like, no, 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 he had gotten the needed assurances from the White House that they weren't you know, going to use the AUMF as this blank check for war. Um, and then in secret, in illegal interpretation of the AUMF a couple days later, that's exactly what John Yu wrote as the wages of the AUMF. Like, can you believe it, guys? Like, Congress has just said, this is the way we get to behave. So let's behave that way. What was the stated rationale initially for the invasion of Afghanistan and the overthrow of the Taliban government? And then how did that change over time? Because was there any reason at all that was explained at the time as to why the U.S. had to overthrow the Afghan government and impose a client regime in its place in order to capture or kill bin Laden and his associates? The surface explanation, which was entirely accepted at the time, was that there is no meaningful distinction to be drawn between bin Laden, al-Qaeda, and those entities that sponsor them. So, you know, like Tupac says, as a staff, a record label, and as a motherfucking crew, like all of it has to go. And so the Taliban, because um, bin Laden lives there and like enjoy, you know, the benefits of Taliban rule and, you know, aid directly from the Taliban. And like at one point as a kind of condition, you know, for for both staying in Afghanistan after he's kicked out of Sudan and his Saudi citizenship is revoked in, I want to say, 1998, bin Laden like swears an oath to Mullah Omar that's basically like, we know who the OG is here. Um, This is your, you know, this is your place. This isn't ours. Um, We're here at your, you know, at at your um, suffrage. Bush is equipped to say all of these things and not draw these distinctions because of this atmosphere of deliberate indecision about who the enemy is. And so this epic conflation of the Taliban and al-Qaeda also means that when bin Laden escapes, the kind of fallback position that operates as something that can look to the public like victory is the fall of the Taliban regime, even though that has at best an attenuated and indirect relationship to 9-11. And the thing that has a direct relationship to 9-11, this guy who escapes through Tora Bora, a place whose construction the CIA helps fund the one place in Afghanistan where once the bombs fall, you really know he's going to be because you've used this in the 1980s as your pathway to smuggle in jihadist fighters that you've been training and funding and equipping in Pakistan to come back to Afghanistan and attack the Soviets and their regime. Anyhow, the Taliban 
get an ultimatum from Bush that's like turn bin Laden over unconditionally now. The Taliban are like, let's talk about this and how it works. Bush replies, fuck you, we invade Afghanistan. By early December, by late November of 2001, the Taliban have been run out of Kabul. Kabul has fallen. And they bivouac to Kandahar, which is where they're from. And they figure they're going to make their stand in Kandahar. And they get absolutely their shit wrecked uh, by the Northern Alliance, the United States' rented army of resistance to the Taliban. And the Taliban realize after a couple of days of this going very badly that they need to sue for peace and recognize the transformed situation that they're in. And they deliver a message to Hamid Karzai, who at the Bonn conference around that time, the United States, um, with the backing of its international allies, kind of accepts as the new leader, elevates as the new leader of uh, a post-Taliban Afghanistan. Karzai gets this message of conditional surrender and says that he accepts it. Karzai, who has been around, like he was a plausible heir um, to Ahmed Shah Massoud's movement in the Panjshir Valley that had resisted the Taliban um, after the Taliban won the Afghan Civil War of the 1990s. Karzai recognizes that if you don't provide the Taliban with a future in Afghanistan, it's going to reconstitute itself and adopt a rejectionist position violently, and it has a proven ability to triumph. So Karzai wants to take this deal. The Taliban are interested in like demobilizing once they secure a guarantee of amnesty uh, for their fighters, that like they won't be persecuted in, in, in a post-Taliban Afghanistan, that they'll have Mullah Omar live under some kind of like supervised house arrest, something like that. Um, and then they'll you know, be willing to discuss terms upon which they demobilize and accept, you know, the fact that they lost this war. From the Pentagon podium in early December, Donald Rumsfeld announces that this is unacceptable, that this is a dishonorable circumstance that the Taliban cannot expect the United States to take seriously. And sounding like he has just cooked up, crushed and snorted the American victory in the Second World War says that only unconditional surrender is acceptable to the United States. You know, that is the moment that the war in Afghanistan is lost in December of 2001, a moment when the United States could have had something plausibly resembling victory, but it was not equipped to do any of that for all of these dynamics that we've discussed. It certainly rhetorically and strategically had equipped itself to do anything other than that because of the deliberate indefinition of the enemy and the conflation of al-Qaeda and the Taliban that it deliberately pursued. In a circumstance in which Taliban fighters are no different than the people who flew the planes into the towers, it was immediately accepted as like, well, what is there to discuss? Now, I think that idea has so colonized our minds that there is a temptation to kind of, you know, when put in those terms, kind of being like, well, I don't agree with that, but I understand the logic. But the fact of the matter is, even if they were no different, the Taliban are a fact about Afghanistan. As long as that fact remains and the United States tries and fails for 20 years to operate as if it is not a fact, 
then the Taliban have to be dealt with on such terms. The central political expression of the plurality ethnic group of Afghanistan. As long as... (laughs) And so the United States, like, puts itself in a position to do nothing but lose this war and kill so many people, create so many refugees, have so many service members either die and or though among those who survive have life-changing experiences, if not life-changing injuries. More American contractors die in the Afghanistan war than American service members, and it's like not really close. It's something like 38,000 contractors and 23 plus hundred service members. The war in Afghanistan is always an extractive money-making endeavor. Even amid such rank bipartisan support for everything pro-war, everything anti-terrorism, the right was already very quickly using the war on terror, not only against the left, but also against pro-war liberals, accusing them of complicity in terrorism. Attorney General John Ashcroft told the Senate Judiciary Committee in December 2001, quote, to those who scare peace-loving people with phantoms of lost liberty. My message is this. Your tactics only aid terrorists, for they erode our national unity and diminish our resolve. Renowned, eloquent, smart guy Andrew Sullivan wrote, quote, The decadent left in its enclaves on the coasts may well mount a fifth column. Meanwhile, establishment Democrats were really eager, as you write, to, quote, exercise the left and restore the reputation of the Cold War liberalism that had built an international order around American hegemony. How did this all work? How did the right set about using the attacks against the left? And then how did so many liberals help make that possible? And then how did that joint effort to marginalize the left so quickly get turned against liberals, even pro-war liberals? Because it happened really fast. As soon as 2002 There was already that infamous TV ad that, quote, juxtaposed triple amputee Vietnam veteran and Georgia Democratic Georgia Senator Max Cleland, who supported Bush on the war, with images of Saddam and bin Laden. As America faces terrorists and extremist dictators, Max Cleland runs television ads claiming he has the courage to lead. He says he supports President Bush at every opportunity, but that's not the truth. Since July, Max Cleland has voted against the president's vital homeland security efforts 11 times. Max Cleland says he has the courage to lead, but the record proves Max Cleland is just misleading. Again, there is this rhetoric of national unity after 9-11, where journalistic and political and intellectual elites just sort of declare that the country is is united and sort of done with the frivolous aspects of its 1990s national politics. They're talking exclusively about elite politics, just to be clear about this. And so now this new national unity, this kind of grown up, this, this desire to be done with childish things um, and accept the responsibilities of history. This is how not even really conservatives described American purpose after 9-11. This was how liberals described it. This is how like very mainstream opinion writers at, you know, large publications interpreted this, that they were, you know, somewhat embarrassed by uh, how crass and vulgar uh, the symbology of 9-11 was. I mean, look, Toby Keith, courtesy of the red, white, and blue. 
Like he just, <laughs> right? Like it, you know, these are like cultural artifacts of 9/11. Is basically like you know the music that just you know expressed nothing beyond like I'm going to go fuck you up. The right from the start, despite and I think through this declared national unity, immediately starts settling scores rhetorically. It starts attributing blame for 9/11 to those who it considers to have, it starts apportioning blame for 9-11 to those who it sees as supporting uh, and maintaining uh, both the intellectual and bureaucratic infrastructure that has inhibited, in their view, the United States from stopping 9-11 in the first place and will, you know, threaten the war on terror and so needs to be suppressed. And by that, they mean nothing, you know, more you know, profound than the rule of law, than the institutions, both cultural um, and political, that restrain uh, the repression of declared internal enemies and that stand in solidarity um, against uh, violence and domination at home and abroad. And those very quickly, like we're like, again, like you say, the left at this point is so marginal that although like and we see this all the time in like the, the kind of like madness inducing ways that the right conflates liberalism and leftism. Um, mainstream news organizations that I have worked for, I have seen like quite directly how frustrating it is when you try and write something about one specific political tradition and then have it entirely confused with entirely distinct political traditions. It's like when the New York Times recently, I think it was referred to Jacobin as a like extremely liberal magazine yeah, like, or oh, something buddy. like that. Very liberal. <laughs> this score settling sets in early. The point of it is exactly the cancel culture point of you know Susan Sontag's experience the point is to ensure the weakness of institutions that will restrain or prohibit the indefinite detentions, the, uh, you know, in not just military, but immigration, outright torture, the renditions, which is to say uh, the kidnapping of people by the CIA and its allies, the relentless airstrikes, the outright invasions, all uh, and, and, and most certainly the police, FBI, and NSA surveillance that is to replace the Fourth Amendment. All of this is designed um, to enable those operations and ensure from the start that those who advocate, even, I mean, like, remember what, you know, the ACLU position from the start of the war on terror is, uh, which is just like, don't do new shit. You could really kind of summarize it at that. Like there is existing ways of doing the job that you say uh, you want to accomplish. Those ways prevent all of these, you know, indiscriminate abuses that you're committing. And the thing about that is that like you can really understand the instrumental value 
of that message, you can understand how just sticking to the extant laws does prevent the the cases of like, you know, the immigrant roundups, you know, in, in the New York metropolitan area. But it entirely erases the fact that there is on that day the existing laws that, you know, many civil libertarian organizations um, emphasize as the right processes for addressing terrorism, that those are already extremely repressive. That, you know, the, 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 the infrastructure of legal repression on 9-11 is not a wholesale creation. It's an expansion of what's already there. And that is something for all of the really excellent work that I do not want to diminish um, the ACLU uh, for launching at a time of quite significant political peril. I think that is a blind spot that a lot of us have also not, not reckoned with. And the point of all of this, to, to go back to your question, is that like the right sees so much opportunity to join under this atmosphere of national emergency, the you know, creation um, and institutionalization of an internal domestic enemy, but also pair their political adversaries as the handmaidens of those enemies of the United States. And look, Karl Rove says very early on in the war on terror, before the midterm elections of 2002, we can go to the country on this, that the Republican Party ought to use the war on terror as a mechanism to ensure that it stays in power. Once the Democratic Party sees that happening, they want absolutely no part of resisting that. They understand that resisting that is a way to have those kind of politics played against them. What are those politics? They're certainly not something that the war on terror invents. They're, in fact, a very familiar pattern of politics throughout the 20th century and particularly um, after the Second World War. What this is, is the politics of anti-communism. You see a tremendous amount of, you know, like zombie anti-communism in the political roles that the parties immediately adopt and sort of like play act on. On, um, on a different podcast, um, I said it was like Cold War anti-communism uh, was like a theater stage that had remained dressed and not broken down. And so elite political actors in both parties and in the security state run onto that stage and kind of assume their old stage directions. Um, a different way of putting it is that, like, you might call the war on terror the 18th Brumaire of anti-communism, that there is a farcical element, a real sick misunderstanding deliberately um, and a reversion of the, of, the, of the circumstance we were actually in. And instead, a reversion to these familiar, distorting and incredibly damaging roles that had been, you know, just so habituated in American political and economic culture, both at home and abroad, you know, since the Cold War. The war on terror operates in such a way as to bring that distorting prism all the way back. And that was also a politics that featured a centrality of na that, that featured nativism as central to its operations and made nativism particularly like when you you know start getting to like the 1980s and like evangelicals get in on this um, and the Reagan coalition kind of restores 
a form of Cold War liberalism for the right that's like using the language of human rights and so forth and liberation to apply to the workings of anti-communist repression in the, in the dirty wars in Latin America. This comes all the way back. This was the thing that made that nativism respectable or was among the things that drove the respectability of nativist politics because it so directly served capital. And all of this came charging back into power during um, the war on terror. And not just by coincidence, because the end of the Cold War, which left the U.S., of course, as the world's sole superpower, you, you might think it would have made Americans feel pretty great and on top of the world as our country was. But instead, the 1990s were full of a sort of foreboding and confusion. And so for a lot of Americans and definitely for American blob natsec elites and politicians, there's something comforting about once again having a big enemy that posed an existential threat. And there are these amazing moments that you get, like, you know, as a reporter, like in these spaces, talking to a bunch of these people, like over long periods of time, where like, you would hear lamentations for the Cold War, because a bipolar world was so much more predictable and controllable. Now, look, I'm not old enough to really have any memory of the Cold War. But like I grew up in a socialist household in New York City where the Cold War was experienced and understood as a calamity and as a threat to both freedom and the prospect of real human freedom that anti-communism exists to um, prevent. And like just hearing the ways in which liberals who were and not only liberals, but liberals also, uh, were relying on Cold War paradigms while simultaneously saying, but of course, the war on terror is not uh, a Cold War enterprise, and we can't think of it that way. And this was the sophisticated argument for like why you shouldn't you know, attack states that were unrelated. Uh, why, why Bush's emphasis after you know, 2002 and 2003 um, on state sponsors of terrorism uh, was considered unsophisticated and a problem, but it was viewed that way as a problem for the war on terror, not as a symptom of how American foreign policy was undergoing what I think is probably fairly described as a psychotic episode. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash The Dig. The Dig is produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine. These are tough times for publishing, but Jacobin is sticking at it, publishing over 200 original essays every month online and producing the best socialist print magazine in the English language. Jacobin's work is just so vital in creating socialist arguments that can penetrate into the mainstream and, like Marx says, change, not just interpret, the world. But this work is dependent on your support. If you're able, please consider going to jacobinmag.com donate and making a tax-deductible donation today. Regular monthly donations help Jacobin plan even better. That's jacobinmag.com slash donate. 
you'll keep Jacobin going in tough times. And Jacobin will be there for you for the struggles to come. Let's turn to Iraq. When did the Bush administration begin planning to invade? And how did the media and so many Democrats end up going along with it? So this is a matter of great dispute. um, And it depends by what you mean by planning. And I don't think we have the time or really the energy to parse this so thoroughly. But suffice it to say that on 9-11 itself, according or the day after, I forget, but one of those days, uh, according to Dick Clark, who is the White House counterterrorism czar, who uh, is left over from the Quinn administration and never really has either influence or trust accordingly um, by the Bush White House, who had been like pressing the Bush administration to be like, you have to do something about Al Qaeda. Like, it looks like they're about to set some shit off. Take this with some kind of seriousness. And the Bush administration never does. And Clark says that like right after the attack, very, very soon after the attack, Bush turns to him and says, you know, look to see if there's any indication that Saddam Hussein was involved. And Clark, who testifies about this to the 9-11 commission, says that he's like taken aback. And he's like, look, Al Qaeda did this. And Bush is like, I know, I know. But like, just see if there's anything there. And like, that's exactly the same thing that you see at the Pentagon when Paul Wolfowitz, uh, who's the deputy defense secretary, gets up to the podium and says that like, because of 9-11 on the agenda is, and these are his words, ending states that sponsor terrorism. Ending states, you know, and who knows what he means by that. And like everyone at that point is also trying to figure out, okay, if the Bush administration is deliberately nonspecific about who the enemy is here, like there becomes this enormous, almost like reality show atmosphere on the cable networks and in the media broadly about like trying to figure out where will the war on terror go next? Bush assembles the weekend after 9-11, his national security team, his war cabinet at Camp David. Among the items on the agenda, particularly brought up by Donald Rumsfeld, is like, so do we attack Iraq now? And the response that comes out of the meeting is, we're going to table that for now. We're not going to say no to that. But like, we're not going to focus on that. Afghanistan is the first target of the war. All throughout the Afghanistan war, this goes back to the point we were talking about, about the indecision of the war and the indecision of that being a mechanism to reject, you know, more distinct, specific and definable end goals for the war. And so, you know, the conflation between Al Qaeda and the Taliban continues. And out of that atmosphere, the Bush administration is saying consistently, Afghanistan isn't going to be the last thing that happens here. We're going to do a lot more than that. And that winter, the winter of 2001, the war cabinet reassembles at Bush's ranch in Crawford. Um, Tommy Franks, who's an absolute fucking moron. It needs to be said that there are a lot of generals who run this war, who are in charge of operations, who are dumb fucking people. And Tommy Franks is a stupid motherfucker. I don't really know how else to put this. I've been reporting on the military for a very long time. I've been around a lot of generals. Tommy Franks is the worst fucking, it's just, it's, it, Dan is laughing back here, but it's just like, this man is incredibly stupid. There have been moments throughout, you should read his memoir 
um, which I want to think is, which, oh my God, I read it at the time. He writes it in 2004 because it's like, it's like campaign literature because he speaks at the, the 2004 Republican National Convention. But it's like this man also, like you go back and read this book and everything he talks about as a virtue is like, and then I, you know, I, I made the decision. We didn't really want to um, own Afghanistan because that would seem like, you know, we would occupy Afghanistan and that would lead to resistance and all that. And like, that was why I wasn't going to, you know, rush Jimmy Mattis to take his 4,000 troops and, um, you know, put them around Tora Bora. And it was like, gee, you know, anyway, like even on, on, even on just the guy's own terms, like the, the absolute fucking stupidity of him is really the defining characteristic. And basically, Franks is told, like, start working up invasion plans um, for Iraq. And like at this point, like there isn't a rationale here and there doesn't seem to need to be a rationale here throughout the spring of throughout all of 2002, while the Bush administration denies that it's doing anything like this and using like the kind of euphemistic non-denials that everyone then understands like means that this thing is real, like Bush would say, like ask, like, are you going to attack Iraq? And Bush would say things like, I have no plans on my desk for that. Yeah. So it's this open secret that is discussed in this atmosphere of kind of like guesswork, um, but anticipation and breathlessness about what the, um, the media and in particular, all the cable networks, not just Fox, but CNN, MSNBC, MSNBC is having like an epic identity crisis. At this point, it is yet to like settle on like the voice of establishment liberalism. It right now doesn't know if it's like just in like like a, a, a straight news, a 24. It doesn't know if it's CNN or Fox and sort of like does the worst of both of those channels for a long time. Um, but like just to say that, like the MSNBC we see then in like 2002, three is not the MSNBC that we see in 2021. Uh, they have Phil Donahue's show. Phil Donahue, like, is the only guy on cable news who openly dissents from an unprovoked war of aggression against Iraq. NBC throws him off the air. Like, this is just treated as absolutely, you know, inevitable. The wisdom of this subject to debate, especially around like procedural and operational questions like when do you go to the United Nations? But it's justice is assumed. Even though, even though, and this is critical, while there was really very little protest against the Afghanistan invasion, I mean, I was a part of them as a freshman in college in Portland, Oregon, and they were small. Ahead of the Iraq War, there were massive protests, including the largest single day of protests globally in world history. And yet still. And it meant nothing. This is, this is also something that tells you kind of everything about the war on terror and its anti-democratic characteristics that the world, the people of the world deliver an unprecedented, a literally unprecedented mobilization against an act of, an, of aggression um, that they feel powerless to change through institutional redress because they are powerless to change it through institutional redress. Bush portrays his enthusiasm for dismissing all of this you know, global outrage as governing by polling, that he considers it uh, beneath contempt. AKA democracy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like he considers that he considers this um, the enemy. Oh, when of you the, govern, yeah. when you govern uh, based on inputs from the 
pub voting public. <laughs> now look, Bush is not. Called? Yeah. Now look, I mean, on one level, you know, it's important to also bring into the conversation that like George W. Bush is not an elected president. You know, we've kind of by this point, this is also something very important that 9-11 does. It transforms George W. Bush from an unelected and presumptively illegitimate president who happened to have enough of the already undemocratic rules behind electing a president break enough in his way. And then some in unexpected ways, like the Supreme Court deciding the 2000 election, um, all of that is washed away because now he is the great leader of the war on terror and he intends to operate that way. So all of this public outrage demanding that a war of aggression not be launched is dismissed as the unfortunate, misguided elements of people uh, who are not prepared to exercise the necessary moral clarity and go along with the order that the United States um, is unfortunately compelled by history uh, to bring now to Baghdad. This tells you everything about how the war on terror conceives of its relations with the public. This tells you everything about how those who carry out the war on terror and those who apologize for the war on terror, those who defend and even expand the war on terror inside the halls of Congress view their relationship with the public, that national security is amongst already. I mean, you and I and everyone who listens to this podcast will say that like the resting state of democracy on offer here in America is not remotely a robust thing that like only when we start out with social democracy, do we have something looking like real democracy. Um, And the United States is like very devoted to suppressing that proposition like institutionally. Right. And then in that context already of exceptionally constrained democracy, the aspects of the government that govern national security and foreign policy are exceptionally non-responsive to the public. And during um, the lead up to the invasion of Iraq, those who ensured that would be the case portrayed that as a virtue. Many Democrats, of course, voted for the Iraq war, even as wartime jingoism was quickly developing an ever- more sharp partisan edge being used by Republicans against any Democrat. You write, quote, three politicians personified the Democratic acquiescence to the Iraq war, Senators Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, and Joe Biden, also known as three out of four of the uh, three out of four of the next Democratic nominees for president. What did the vote for war from each of those Democratic senators reveal about the Democratic politics of the war on terror at the time? You know, going back to the point about uh, the Democratic Party and Cold War anti-communism and Cold War liberalism, everyone on everyone who's a, a fan of this podcast is is familiar with you know this story um, to some degree, which is the Cold War liberalism dies in Vietnam. The Vietnam War is one of the leading contributing factors to the destruction of the New Deal political coalition. And as this happens, the 1973 oil shock sets in, 
austerity, the, Vol- the Volcker shock sets in, then um, austerity politics, Reaganism, the ultimately uh, Democratic Party's response to a lot of this is to shed its um, commitments to its labor constituency, become less of a working class party um, and much more of uh, a middle class and increasingly upper middle class cosmopolitan party. Among the consequences of this on the national security and foreign policy front is that elite Democrats understand foreign policy and national security as only something that can hurt them through the application of Cold War politics played against them. And then also that um, a proper alternative conception to be offered from the Democratic Party is one of more enlightened management of the American you know, global military, um, geopolitical and, and geoeconomic systems that unlike these crazy Republicans um, and their theological conceptions of the Cold War, it's the Democratic uh, Party's cadre of technocrats, educated properly, put into positions of uh, wonkish authority at places like the State Department and then the Pentagon and even sometimes the CIA um, that are the appropriate stewards of this enterprise of um, American power. Democrats, they have room after room after room full of adults. You wouldn't believe it. So many adults. You get you get you get just nothing but adults. The adults are there. And, you know, Kerry, John Kerry, of course, is a decorated Vietnam veteran who very bravely. I think we can, you know, sometimes overlook this, but very bravely joins Vietnam veterans against the war and speaks with tremendous candor and power about the horrors of Vietnam and conceptualizes it. If you read Kerry's testimony to Congress, there's a lot of it that will cause listeners of this podcast uh, to cheer in the way that Kerry roots Vietnam in much broader, older, and deeper trajectories of American foreign policy that he comes out you know, with pitchforks to destroy because he saw what it did to himself, his fellow service members and to Vietnamese people. He does this in such strident terms that he inspires the forever hatred of many revanchist Vietnam veterans who ultimately fuel swift boat veterans for truth um, during um, the 2004 election and lie and say that Kerry faked his Vietnam war wounds and accordingly should not have uh, the respect that we show uh, to troops and to veterans, particularly in the post 9-11 era. Kerry and Biden, who were senators in 1991, in 1990 rather, vote against the first Gulf War. The first Gulf War is immediately seen as a major success. All of the predictions that it will become another Vietnam are overtaken by events. It's something like a 90-day war. Um, it ends with something that looks like decisive, you know, conclusion. The thing that the United States came to accomplish, getting the Iraqi army out of Kuwait, it accomplishes. And it also accomplishes getting rid of that pesky Vietnam syndrome. Yes, this is this is very, very much why Kerry and Biden come to view their votes against the war as like very deep political mistakes. Because for them, they misjudge as they come to see it how badly a nation, and this is all not a nation, this is an elite class 
wounded by Vietnam, feeling like it didn't get the satisfaction of a glorious war from Vietnam. It got only, you know, uncomfortable feelings about its own, you know, complicity and horror that shake the confidence of Americans in their system, right? But instead it needs that rejuvenating, basically it needs like a, America needs a, like a key bump of, of like American exceptionalism in the bathroom. We all know the feeling. <laughs> that, uh, the co- that, that the 1991 Gulf War provides. And so like already that shapes their performance when it comes to a kind of, you know, dry run for how liberalism justifies American empire after the Cold War in the 1990s over the Balkans, where to various degrees, they uh, support the Balkans wars and the idea that America like has a, you know, a role um, in violently settling deeply um, violent and genocidal internal ethnic conflicts in other parts of the world in that like a, a kind of germ that will become known as the responsibility to protect sort of emerges from um, in the Balkans. And then, of course, after 9-11, they see this syndrome vastly, vastly heightened and are simply cognizant that to oppose a war in this environment is not politically viable for them. That is a choice they make. Other, you know, half the Democratic Senatorial Caucus makes another choice. But the ambition of the leaders of the Democratic Party who are in power in national office on, you know, and after 9-11, you know, reflect what Kerry, Biden, and Clinton did. Let's let's just take Biden for a moment because he's the president of the United States. Biden is, if you ever want to just have like a weird experience living or reliving a, a capital M moment in the war on terror, Go to YouTube or go to C-SPAN and pull up Biden's floor speech. It's about an hour long from October 10th, 2002, when he's voting on um, the resolution uh, to invade Iraq. President Bush did not lash out precipitously at Iraq after 9-11. He did not snub the UN or our allies. He did not dismiss new inspection regimes. He did not ignore Congress. At each pivotal moment, He's chosen a course of moderation and deliberation, and I believe he will continue to do so. At least that is my fervent hope. I wish he would turn down the rhetorical excess in some cases, because I think it undercuts the decision he ends up making. But in each case, in my view, he has made the right, rational, and calm, deliberate decision. And Biden's Clinton speech is much more like, you know, I really hope that, you know, he Bush does this procedurally the right way. And like that will, you know, obviously give us more legitimacy. That's the right thing to do. In order to do that, we have to give Bush the power um, to even take that step. And so that's what I'm voting for. Biden does something a little bit different. Biden frames his vote. I swear to God, you really if doubt me all you like, but then watch this speech. Biden frames his vote for the war as a way of weakening the Bush administration neocons, who he genuinely disdains. That's wild. What he means by this is a reference to an open political secret that Colin Powell, um, a national hero from the first Gulf War, the first black person 
to serve as national security advisor and as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and now as Secretary of State, is against the Wolfowitz neocon faction and as well against um, their um, big patrons in the Bush administration, Cheney and Rumsfeld, um, for shaping uh, the course of the Iraq war. Powell's course is one that runs through the United Nations and in theory, this would ultimately be a refuted theory, but in theory at the time held that if Bush just pursued a course through the United Nations of you know, demanding more rigorous weapons inspection, all nations at the Security Council will vote for that as an alternative to war. And that might actually like resolve the crisis in such a way that an invasion is not necessary because you could determine that Saddam Hussein is not armed. Now, look, all of that is a gigantic delusion. This is a war foretold. And what Powell really did was make the war possible for respectable people to embrace because it followed uh, rules of process liberalism. So Biden, in his speech, is arguing not just for strengthening Powell's approach, but is actually gloating to neocons about how he has been like having all of these great conversations with, with George Bush and Condoleezza Rice and like the neocons are marginalized and this vote just like represents how significant that marginalization will be and that there is a possibility of um, going to war the right way that we ought to maximize. So like, first off, we should recognize that Joe Biden is the senior Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. His people, Tony Blinken, who's now Secretary of State, um, at the like really want to point out that like Biden held these hearings with Chuck Hagel. I'm sorry, with um Dick Luker, um, a, a very establishment internationalist Republican, in the summer of 2002, that like outlined the, the risks of invasion. They don't really outline most of the real risks of invasion. And they also take for granted that the United States will A, accomplish them, and B, more fundamentally, has the right to invade Iraq. And Biden himself during those hearings kind of like foreshadows the way this is all a foregone conclusion by like after a lot of throat clearing stuff, say like Saddam Hussein will either voluntarily disarm. I suppose you could say that he was compelled to disarm, but like that would also be success. But um, if he won't do that, then the United States must disarm him. And that's the Bush administration's position as it is. Biden, when the war happens, like gives a bunch of speeches about how like he's worried about this or that concern and it was wrong. Uh, to mislead the public about weapons of mass destruction. But like he is the most important elected Democrat when it comes to foreign policy. And he lines up behind this thing. Not only does he line up behind this thing, he finds it increasingly difficult to like find the right position to reject it. I worked for the New Republic magazine under Marty Peretz. And in 2004, I was a, I started doing that when I was 22. So when I was 24, the magazine like is compelled to do a cover story in the midst of the presidential election when it's very clear that like both Sunni and Shiite Iraq are in open revolt, that like everything anyone has ever said in arguing for the outcome of the Iraq war, like all of that is overtaken by events. It's just like a very obvious, unignorable 
disaster, no matter how much the political establishment is trying to pretend that like this is just a flesh wound. Biden runs a piece for TNR in an issue titled, Were We Wrong? Which, because I lost an internal, literally hours long debate uh, at an all hands, um, the answer was not really. Biden runs a piece for that issue uh, in which he talks about like, Yes, this is going badly because the Bush administration is so incompetent, but no, we can't leave. We have a real mission to achieve in Iraq. And like the piece is entirely incoherent. I recommend everyone read it because it's just wild. Eventually, this goes so badly that Joe Biden and Wes Gelb of the Council on Foreign Relations reach to as a solution. Partitioning Iraq like the United States has just invaded this country, absolutely destroyed it privatized everything about it, operating it using an unelected appointed clique of mostly Iraqi exiles. And then like as resistance coalesces, engages in acts of routine barbarism. In one case that I can think of from 2003 that I put in the book, an army battalion wraps an entire village in Western Iraq in concertina wire issues um, pass cards in English only, warning them that if they violate curfew, they can be executed. Um, Children start hearing from their parents that if they don't go to bed on time, Colonel Sassaman is going to come for them. Biden's response to that in Iraq um, is to call for the partition of the country, which has the amazing effect of uniting warring Iraqi civil war combatants against this proposal and just saying basically for every Arab Iraqi, like, who the fuck do you think you are having already invaded and occupied our country, decimated our like daily lives? And now you think you can like redefine what the borders of this country are? So like that is a whole lot of uh, Joe Biden's history uh, with Iraq before he enters um, the Obama administration. Yeah. And the Democrats totally don't get the medium or long-term politics of this at all. At the time, all they can see is that there's majority public support for the invasion at the time in 2003. They can't see that that majority support is in part an artifact of the high-profile bipartisan support for the war, which includes the high-profile media support for the war. And they can't, for the life of them, look around the bend to see what might be coming next. I'm not even talking about for ethical or moral purposes, but just for their own cynical purposes of self-preservation and political advancement. And is there anything so painfully illustrative at the time of the war on terror's bipartisan hold on American politics and the way that Democrats just willingly, consistently ceded the basic bedrock framing of American politics to Republicans' advantage than John Kerry's appearance at the 2004 DNC announcing that he was reporting for duty. It was so pathetic. And it did not, of course, stop him from getting swift-boated. I'm John Kerry, and I'm reporting for duty. Quite to the contrary. What did the Kerry campaign and the Democrats think they were doing there? And what did they actually accomplish? Yeah, the Kerry campaign is like such an artifact of 9-11 politics because first, 
the viability of Kerry's candidacy is predicated on two things um, as it conceives of itself. First, that you can't say John Kerry is an opponent of the war on terror. He votes for the Iraq war. You can't, and also what seems like the, the cultural and political rules of the war on terror is that you have to venerate military service. And guess what? John Kerry's a veteran. And he's also the kind of veteran who, the kind of combat veteran in particular, who came home and protested an unjust war. So you have like great flexibility in how you can understand John Kerry's political symbology and his relationship with an enterprise that like the Democratic Party is mostly behind, but like has some reservations about. Um, what we were talking about earlier about the way the Democratic Party, as it loses its relationship traditionally with its working class uh, constituents, starts to replace that when it comes to foreign policy and national security with technocracy. The pitch of John Kerry's campaign is that the problem with the Iraq war and the war on terror generally is that George Bush directs it. And George Bush is a psycho and George Bush is an idiot. And it's basically the same thing that like Democrats say when they don't really have principled objections. Like they say this about Reagan. They say this about Bush. They say this about Trump. Like to go through in a more fundamental sense about why they're wrong would involve implicating activities the Democratic Party and its constituents eagerly go along with. So that can't be done. And Kerry instead thinks that the rules of the war on terror are such that people like him get valorized. And he has the gravitas to say that all of this disaster that we start to see take effect in 2004 in Iraq is the result of the hated George W. Bush who doesn't know what he's doing and John Kerry does. And also we have to remember that like the specter of Vietnam hangs over every aspect of like the Iraq war as it deteriorates, um, especially in 2004. Um, and so there is amongst like boomers, this is kind of the last political skirmish of the Vietnam war. Um, this is in many ways about like relitigating who was right then and not just like who is right about Iraq. And like you really get like very 18th Brumary of the Vietnam War during the 2004 election. And like Kerry is surrounding himself with his old war buddies, uh, Max Cleland, the guy who they run, who they defeat for the Senate uh, because they run the ad against a triple amputee Vietnam veteran, uh, morphing his face into bin Laden um, and into Saddam Hussein. Um, interesting fact. Never Trump uh, resistance hero Rick Wilson made that ad. Wow. I did not know that. So anywho, Kerry very early on gets confronted with something that he doesn't expect, which is widespread, very deep grassroots anger within the Democratic electorate for the Iraq war. The people who are like my age and your age, I think, who are the most politically engaged and considered Bush and the war on terror, and especially the Iraq war, moral emergencies that demanded redress threw themselves um, into the Howard Dean campaign um, in a way that prefigures um, Bernie's campaigns. Certainly not an agenda, but just like the left has really nowhere to go 
um, at that point. And people are trying desperately to fight back against this nightmare. And it's a way it's a it's this really pathetic moment where what passes for the left in terms of media is like Marcos Molistas and the net roots and whatnot. It's a really weird moment. Yeah. I mean, you know, as a former fire dog wake blogger, <laughs> oh, uh, <wow. laughs> I, I don't really know how, you know, how I have a leg to stand on here. It's a wild time in culture. Yes. Kerry quickly encounters that the energy and the zeal and the righteousness that exist on the left are now aimed at him. And he tries playing war on terror politics against Dean and like uh, takes, you know, a lot of manufactured outrage at a completely forgotten moment in the primary where Dean refers to Hamas as having soldiers. And this is, you know, a moment that shows uh, Howard Dean bequeaths valor upon terrorists who deserve none. Anyway, that doesn't really work so well. Kerry like finds for most of the winter of 2004 that uh, he's on a, on a back foot and he can't explain um, his votes for the Iraq war um, and the veneer of patriotic uh, righteousness of the war is turning into, is turning out to be very brittle, a very brittle uh, protection for him. Um, in this circumstance. And I voted is, before it. I voted for it before I voted against it. Yeah, which is an amazing just to explain this um, line that maybe we don't need to explain. But basically, like the Bush team very quickly, very accurately reads Kerry's um, fundamental political weakness um, and recognizes that you can just like wrap a narrative of inconstancy around this guy because he just like drives himself into like absolute circles, like totally wraps himself around the axle when he just tries to arrive at a simple explanation of his position on Iraq and on the the war on terror more broadly and the relationship between these two things. There is a very controversial, remember that all of this happens in the context of like a recession, that right after the invasion of Iraq, Bush sends a bill to Congress demanding $87 billion to fund quote-unquote reconstruction. What this really is is an $87 billion transference of public wealth to the defense industry. Like, Iraqis aren't benefiting from that shit. Kerry explains there's a lot of anger on this. Like, this is something that kind of, it's obviously not the same thing, but like the sticker shock of the Iraq war, um, the Bush administration very deliberately claimed that the war would pay for itself. Um, and then all of a sudden, a couple months later, here's George Bush asking for $87 billion in a recession. What passes for progressive elements of the Democratic Party really dislike this. Kerry tries to say that he tried to get like important parts of it funded. And, you know, Biden, by the way, is like going full on, like, you have to vote for the $87 billion, finish the job, win the war. And ultimately, like, gives this tortured line that Bush, you know, puts on on TV ads that says, well, I actually voted for the $87 billion before I voted against it um, as a way of trying to reassure like the crowd in that moment um, that he understands the complexity of these situations, but really just reveals that like he, he just doesn't have like an acceptably steady stance on these things. You, you simply can't know. Bush tells the truth about John Kerry, like because Kerry can't figure out either what he believes on the Iraq war or what he is willing to express about the Iraq war. His critique is so muddled 
that you have very little ability to predict what, in fact, um, he will do as president when it comes to the Iraq war. And the best he can come up with to counter Bush is invoking the pottery barn rule. Which is outsourcing <laughs> a critique to uh, to Cohen Powell, who is the one who actually says that. Yeah. And like by the time, you know, the election approaches, Iraq is such a disaster and people like Dick Clark have like testified to the 9-11 commission that like the Iraq war is a dangerous mistake because it is a distraction from the war against terrorism. It's a distraction from the war against Al-Qaeda. And like in that moment, the Democratic Party and particularly the Kerry campaign kind of see the critique they should have made but now are like locked in against. He gets um, aid from another Vietnam veteran who quits uh, the Bush administration's uh, White House counterterrorism team named Randy Beers. Um, Beers, who will go on to be uh, Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security in the Obama administration. Rand Beers is one of the only people in the United States government uh, to resign in protest of the Iraq war. And his was a particularly... Um, powerful protest because he su- he resigned from the White House and the very next day volunteered for the Kerry campaign and joined its brain trust. The trouble is, is that Kerry supported the fucking war. So like he's stepping right on, like he could have joined Howard Dean's campaign, but he doesn't. But like Kerry is by virtue of this epic mistake to sign up for the war has put himself in such a position as to be unequipped to make any real critique either substantive or political, of the Iraq war, and he loses the election. He doesn't lose by much. You know, he's still running against George Bush, um, but he loses the election. So ends that chapter of John Kerry's political career, though not that chapter of democratic acquiescence to the war on terror. As the war went bad fast, a divide began to widen, emerge and widen on the right. And I don't think that divide at the time was too evident to many outside the right. You write, quote, the split between neoconservatives and nativists represented competing conceptions of American exceptionalism. Both were inclined to civilizational explanations for 9-11. What then were these competing conceptions and how and when did the war on terror's balance of power on the political right, within the political right, begin to shift from neocons to nativist nationalists well before the prospect of a Trump presidency was anywhere near on the horizon. So I think the best thing to do is to recognize that while nativism and neoconservatism are competing factions, they operate in an important symbiosis, uh, particularly throughout the 9-11 era. So So consider on one hand, one of the kind of quintessential uh, neoconservative writers who achieves prominence um, as an oracle of the 9-11 era. And that's Bernard Lewis of Princeton. So like, here's someone who, you know, we're not even talking about um, as a policymaker. We're talking about as someone who has laid foundations for the intellectual development of the people who are neoconservative policymakers. And if you read Lewis um, in the, you know, both the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and in the months that follow, he doesn't publish in places like the Weekly Standard or National Review or Fox News or like, you know, the Warrens of, um, you know, conservative outposts. He publishes in the New Yorker. 
he publishes in the most respectable uh, warrens of American opinion um, and is treated very seriously. And in the explanation that he offers, which is the neoconservative explanation of 9-11, what's happened is that a civilizational pathology, an anti-modern civilizational pathology, has taken hold within the Muslim world and especially the Arab world. It has been a pathology that is resistant to real political development. It is both cynical and authentically backward. So to be exploited uh, by the petty tyrants of the Arab and Muslim world, you know, with, with extremely like deliberate obfuscation that it is the United States that backs those regimes and funds them. Um, it, you know, Lewis, you know, will say as well, neoconservatism will say as well, that now finally does the United States understand what the valiant Spartan-like Israel experiences through um, what, of course, they will not recognize as uh, an apartheid system that America is invited to identify with, but more importantly, um, is expected not to question that Israel's war against Palestinians is America's war on terror. That's a very important contention there. And then Lewis talks about how we need to understand 9-11 as a humiliation. We need to understand that, you know, bin Laden has talked endlessly about the United States as a paper tiger, that it only appears like the United States is the only remaining global hegemonic power. In fact, the United States is engaged in a campaign of misguided withdrawal from the Muslim world, really from its responsibilities toward these benighted realms to to project American power in order to make sure um, that these malignant elements uh, within um, Muslim civilization, especially Arab civilization, don't you know, expand beyond their prescribed frontiers and threaten America, and that's what's happened. We should understand 9-11 as a culmination proving bin Laden's point about how, and this is the subtext, liberals can't be trusted to wield American power overseas. In the course of saying this, he also talks about how it might, this is like immediately after 9-11, this is his first New Yorker piece after 9-11, definitely check this one out. Again, in the New Yorker, he talks not only about the possibility uh, the the like sad inevitability, how necessary it is to invade Iraq. But he also says that about Iran. So like from the start, we have civilizational pathology rather than, you know, specific historical and material explanations for Al-Qaeda. We have an attribution of blame accordingly that goes far beyond Al-Qaeda toward essentially, you know, mainstream Arab and Muslim political thoughts, structures, organization, and so forth, we have an incensed sensibility that because American exceptionalism has been violated, 9-11 represents America being acted upon, not acting in the world, the only redress, the only thing to do is to prove bin Laden wrong by reasserting as if this had ever gone away. American power violently in these regions. When you look at what, you know, nativist currents were saying, they were saying the same things, 
except they weren't so focused. Obviously, you know, you know, we'll put a boot up your ass. It's the American way is out there. But what they're, you know, more often saying is that like the danger that's expressed by 9-11 is a danger that highlights how these people are already in the country. They're living in places like Maine. They're living in places. And if I had another way of doing this book, there was an earlier version of this book that was like telling this story just through 30 years of demographic change and political change in Minnesota, like in Minneapolis in particular, like the the political structures uh, that elect first Keith Ellison, um, who's the first Muslim in the United States Congress and now Ilhan Omar. So that nativism is much more focused on using the tools of the state. Obviously, they, they're not against the wars. Um, some of them, some, some nativist intellectuals are, in fact, against the invasion of Iraq. And like this al- Pat Buchanan. Yeah, like Pat Buchanan. And um, this allows for, um, a na- for a neoconservative opportunity for, for a purge uh, to remove nativists from like, intellectual respectability and accordingly political power. Um, most importantly, David Frum, writes a national review cover story called Unpatriotic Conservatives. At that moment, like it's the first neoconservative opportunity to strike back against nativists using only the symbology and the rhetoric, extreme patriotism, um, that it's playing the nativist uh, political gambit so often played against neoconservatives who are, of course, urbane intellectuals, three parentheses, which is to say Jews against nativists now. Um, so would it, that is to say that the, the politics of the war on terror are such that distinguish conditional Americans from real Americans. And now the neoconservatives are using the war in Iraq in particular um, to put that conditional status on the nativists, which of course is enraging for the nativists who view the neoconservatives very often as you know Jewish puppet masters. But the nativist critique and the neoconservative critique are identically pathological. They're identically diagnosing pathology in foreign civilizations. They agree on all of this. They agree on the neoconservatives will not emphasize and they will often try and soft play what is happening um, when it comes to immigration and um, immigration suppression. They're not against those things. They just don't see them as particular points of emphasis. When they write about them in places like the Weekly Standard, um, typically they're laudatory. They're just not the, the thing that like they care about the most um, in neoconservatism. And the neocons claim that they're waging a war for Muslims, whereas the nativists and nationalists understand that it is a civilizational war against Muslims. And it's except that the neoconservatives kind of have this both ways because very often they will talk about, like we said, deep pathologies of the Muslim world that require, and this is Max Boot's famous language, um, the kind of enlightened self interest that used to be performed uh, by self confident Englishmen in jodhpurs and pith helmets, um, while simultaneously arguing, as you point out, that ultimately. This redounds to the benefits of the natives themselves. Right. It's paternalist. How often have we seen this? Exactly. How often have we seen this through the history of imperialism, through the history of settler colonialism? You know, we'll bomb you for your freedom. Yeah. And it's important to emphasize that however twisted and paternalist the neocons were, that they, in, 
they and the Bush administration really did aggressively frame the Iraq war and the entire war on terror as a beneficent, civilizing mission, this act of charity from the United States to bring freedom and democracy to oppress people across the Arab world. You write, quote, Wolfowitz spoke in the Arab American community of Dearborn of Iraqis dream of a just and democratic society. Admirers like Christopher Hitchens called Wolfowitz a revolutionary. For his part, Bush implied that opponents of the war believed that Arabs must not be civilized enough for democracy. This is another uh, bigotry of low, ex- of, uh, of low expectations. Are the peoples of the Middle East somehow beyond the reach of liberty? Are millions of men and women and children condemned by history or culture to live in despotism? There was this tension between the obvious civilizational war taking place on the one hand, and then Bush's, Bush and the neocons' insistence on framing it as a militarized act of paternal benevolence to liberate the the Muslim world. And aren't you the real racist by opposing the Iraq war? Yeah. Like, that's the subtext of, of, of all of that. And what's key here is that though the neocon and nativist nationalist conceptions are on this formal level hostile to one another, the former empowers the latter, ultimately, which the neocons, of course, can never understand. Yeah, this is why I say that this is a symbiotic relationship and that what the neocons are doing, whether they realize it or most often they don't, um, is preparing, you know, the military term for this is preparing the battlefield. Um, setting the proper battlefield conditions um, for uh, the nativists and ultimately um, MAGA to triumph and then turn their attention against them. One of my favorite examples of this, where you see just how seamless the alliance is, how deep the symbiosis runs, is shortly after Obama is elected president, Liz Cheney, Bill Kristol, and a particularly rabid 9-11 veteran and like deeply Islamophobic person named Deborah Burlingame start a a political action committee uh, called Keep America Safe. Who does America need to be kept safe from? America needs to be kept safe from, it is implying Barack Obama, playing off the extant nativist meme of birtherism, which suggests that not only is Barack Obama not a legitimate president because he is black, he is in fact an enemy of real legitimate Americans, real Americans, as Sarah Palin puts it, because he is secretly a Muslim. And this is a time of war that, you know, as Rudy Giuliani puts it, uh, the terrorists war against us. They run an ad, these respectable neoconservatives, that calls seven attorneys who go to work for the Justice Department uh, in the Obama administration who had during the Bush administration represented clients in terrorism cases, they run an ad calling them the Al-Qaeda 7. Now, if you hear the words the Al-Qaeda 7, you think this is an Al-Qaeda cell. Like, this is not like subtle political language. This is neoconservatives realizing how powerful a nativist appeal, particularly against a black president, particularly in a time of war against a definably non-white enemy, a definably foreign, even if on American soil, enemy is. And what an opportunity that presents themselves to restore themselves to power. And I think everything that we see since 
in both Dick Cheney, I'm sorry, in both uh, Bill Kristol and Liz Cheney's political careers um, needs to be understood as emerging from that soil, particularly today, as both of these people seek to portray themselves as the antithesis of Trump and MAGA rather than the precursor conditions for it. Yeah. In, in many ways, this bedrock belief that the U.S. was doing a huge favor for the Arab world, it set up the right wing to blame Arabs and Muslims for the war's failure and for this balance of power to shift from the neocons to the nativist nationalists. Because if the United States gave so much to the Muslim world, then the Muslim world refusing our charity and meeting our beneficent offer to them with such violence was just proof of how horrible Muslims were. And it likewise proved that liberal humanitarianism was just an unself-interestedly stupid thing to do or even treasonous. The fact that Iraqis and others on the receiving end of our armed beneficence weren't thanking Americans. This was a frequent theme on the right. Fred Barnes, you quote in the Weekly Standard after visiting Baghdad in April 2004, quote, I'd like to see one other thing in Iraq, an outbreak of gratitude for the greatest act of benevolence one country has ever done for another. Bush repeatedly told Paul Bremer, the the viceroy of Iraq, the head of the coalition provisional authority, repeatedly told him that Iraq's new leader should be, quote, someone who's willing to stand up and thank the American people for their sacrifice in liberating Iraq. And then later on, towards the end of his second turn, we got it. We got to talk about it. Bush ruminated upon why Americans were becoming so disaffected with the Iraq war. And he said, quote, that's the problem here in America. They wonder whether or not there is a gratitude level that's significant enough in Iraq. So a couple things about this. First, another one that I think is very important uh, to bring up is that one of the leading broadcasting warmongers of the war on terror and the Iraq war in particular is Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson, as much as he postures as an anti-war figure in his current nativist incarnation, not only pimped for the wars so hard on CNN, but later can only interpret the failure of the Iraq war as a failing of the Iraqi people and like gives interviews um, that I quote in the book talking about how like these are subhumans. They don't even know like how to wipe their asses. They can just shut the fuck up and obey as far as I'm concerned. This is like so consistent a pattern that, you know, the war was glorious. The problem was with the people uh, who lived in the place where um, where the war was fought, um, that the United States had done something so valorous. The neoconservative intellectual Fuad Ajami wrote a book about this called The Foreigner's Gift. There is an absolutely amazing David Brooks piece gloating about the Iraq war from right after the fall of Baghdad in where he talks about using uh, Fuad Ajami's famous language, the dream palaces of the Arabs and the dream palaces of the liberals. Basically, everyone who can't, everyone who is so benighted or intellectually dishonest that they can't recognize that America has just done this great thing and it's worked out so tremendously well. What also happens um, is that evangelical communities, which had pushed very, very hard for the invasion of Iraq with the religious 
overtone that like the Bush administration kind of wanted to steer away from, which is that like kind of a crusade was happening that like there that we were, were fighting even, evil, which evangelicals love to hear understood. Yeah, exactly. They like very quickly saw that like efforts at missionary activities in Iraq were met with violent responses um, and were understood by Iraqis as like the end result, like the ultimate goal of what the war, you know, was there to accomplish the end of Islam um, in, in Iraq and Iraq becomes very quickly. And I've seen this personally in Northern Iraq, a dangerous place for Christians to live. And the evangelical disillusionment um, with that enterprise uh, is profound. And it is also a factor um, in uh, the turn away from like open Bush era um, embrace of uh, foreign military expedition, but never with the diminution of hatred of Muslims and Islam. Only at this point, there is, you know, when you can't get vengeance against such an enemy overseas, you can get vengeance on communities like Murfreesboro, Tennessee. That was part one of The Dig's three-part series on the War on Terror with Spencer Ackerman. Look out for episodes two and three, which will cover the War on Terror under Obama, Trump, and Biden next week. Spencer Ackerman is the author of Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. He currently writes the Forever Wars newsletter on Substack, which I will link to in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, but unheroic though bourgeois society is, it nevertheless needed heroism, sacrifice, terror, civil war, and national wars to bring it into being. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. The Dig is recorded at WBRU in Providence. Our communications coordinator is Tamuz Frankel. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also do leave a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling other people why they should listen to the show, why you listen to the show, etc. Please do make propaganda for us, and please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep the dig up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Thank you.